This is Who She Knows, a podcast produced by She Knows Media. And this is your host, Elisa Camahort-Page, Chief Community Officer for She Knows Media. Today we'll be talking to three women about how they are leveraging technology and social media to address mental health in the online community. We have Nancy Lublin with us right now. Nancy created Dress for Success and was longtime CEO of DoSomething.org, but now you can find her innovating mental health care as the founder and CEO of Crisis Text Line, a nonprofit providing free emergency intervention via texting and messaging. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So you have clearly devoted your life to social impact and social uh, entrepreneurism, basically. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. What cultivated this drive in you? Right. I know I actually look like a communist from my background. I don't actually have an aversion to making money. I swear. I just, I'm an entrepreneur. I just keep starting not-for-profits instead right. of for-profits. I don't know. Um, so, yeah, I just, I like solving problems. And um, I don't know. I, I can't really, There's. It, it's not like I set out to do this. It kind of picked me. I was an entrepreneur before anybody knew how to spell the word entrepreneur. <laughs> yeah. I um I don't know. I, I, I think it's so weird that it's become cool now and it's a thing and you can get a master's degree in it and people are hunched over laptops in Starbucks uh-huh. trying to come up with business plans. It's, it's totally weird to me. It is funny. What, may I ask, what did you study in school? Um, politics and political theory, feminist theory. Okay, so you, you always had a little bit of that. Went to law school. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. I've always been a bit of a rebel rouser, and I had a strong sense of justice. But, um, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I can't explain it. There you go. Well, so tell us a little bit about Crisis Text Line. First of all, just what is it? How does it work? Crisis Text Line is twenty four seven support at your fingertips. So it is what it says it is. It's a crisis text line. Um, you can text seven four one seven four one. It's available twenty four seven for free uh, anywhere in the United States and you'll be connected with a human being, a trained human being on the other side who uh, will help you move from a hot place to Mm. a cool place. It's not therapy. We're not here to solve problems. We're here to get you out of crisis Mm -hmm. and help you come up with coping skills. And then it's also about the data. I mean, so I would say half of what we do is about the direct service helping individuals. But the other half of what we do is learning from it and Mm. understanding what the heck is going on in our country and trying to reduce stigma, direct funds to the right places and media attention to the right places by illuminating what's happening and sharing information. So on the service part of it, would you say it's sort of like taking suicide hotlines into the text environment? It's more than that. More? It, it, we're really we're not a suicide line. It's okay. we're a crisis line, and so only thirty percent of our messages are about suicide mm. and depression. So the other seventy percent are everything from anxiety, self harm, domestic violence, mm. eating disorders. It's a poo poo platter of mental health issues. Uh, your next tagline, I guess. Wow. Um, (laughs) um, so who is using crisis text line do we know the demographics do we know how they're distributed across age or across ethnicity we we know an enormous amount we know that um 75 to 80 percent of our texters are under the age of 25 
Oh, wow. So this is predominantly young people, including in the last couple of weeks, 9% of our texters has, have been under the age of 13 wow. young people. Um, we know that 14% of our texters identify as Hispanic. Um, even though we're still an English-only service. Mm-hmm. And even more interesting, 5 to 6% of our texters identify as Native American, wow. um, which is super important um, because they're um, at very high risk for suicide. Mm-hmm. So basically, if you, if you really think about who we're reaching, it's young, rural, and poor mm. who really need mental health services and don't have access to them. So we're hitting exactly who we should. So who is the audience for that data? You know, some of it is open to the public. If mm-hmm. you go to crisistrends, T-R-E-N-D-S dot org, um, we've made aggregate data available and open in real time. So you can see the worst time of day, worst day of the week, mm. um, the, compare the 50 states on these issues. Um, that's, that's pretty exciting, the aggregate data. And we've heard, we've seen news clippings. We know that states have been reacting to where they show up in the rankings there. Um, We've heard that this is having an impact. But then we also have what's called enclave data, which is another level beyond that. So particular um, queries, Mm -hmm. polls that people want to make. And we've opened up by application only and for non-commercial use. So academics Mm -hmm. mostly um, and some governmental agencies applying to do a pull, a special pull of our data. So for example, Ryerson College in Canada is looking at hate crimes and LGBTQ uh, violence. And so they're doing a pull of our LGBTQ text messages to compare them to public information on hate crimes hmm. and policies to see if they can understand trends. That's a, that's a smart data poll that, that we approved um, that will hopefully lead to, you know, smart policy and learnings and reducing stigma. Why did you start Crisis Text Line? Like, when did you become aware that this was something that was needed Right. Um, yeah, it's it it was a total I didn't know. Right. It was mm-hmm. it completely smacked me in the face. It was totally organic. I was the CEO of do something dot org, which is the largest um, member organization for young people and, and volunteerism and social change in, in America. So we would send out a message from do something about a campaign and get you know, a couple hundred thousand people doing campaigns, but a few dozen messages back having nothing to do with the campaign, but things like I'm being bullied, I don't want to go to school tomorrow, or, you know, um, questions about drug addiction. Hmm. Um, and we were triaging them like, here's, here's a hotline, go talk to your principal. Hey, maybe you want to talk to your mom about that. We were just sort of like figuring it out as we went along. And then we got a message from a girl that was so horrific so just off the charts that it made us, it was like being punched in the stomach. Mm. And she texted in and said that she was being raped by her father. Mm-hmm. We gave her the phone number for Rain, which mm-hmm. is the terrific you yeah. know, National Rape and Incest Organization. Actually, we never heard back from her again. Oh. So uh, it just, it haunted us. Right. And I, I had the idea for Crisis Text Line and got started on it right away. Yeah, I I think people sometimes don't realize when you're running any kind of community um, online and where people can be pseudonymous, right? With um, blogher.com, you can be a member and be pseudonymous. And um, you have to have protocols in place for dealing with people who express 
all sorts of things on your site that they feel somewhat safe doing because there's this filter of, you know, they're telling somebody and it doesn't feel like they're telling somebody right there with them. And sometimes that's safer. And so most most online communities have to have protocols in place. How do you deal with someone who's got suicidal ideation going on or someone who's talking about a potentially criminal activity? And and you're right. It's, it's fairly common. And one of the things that's interesting is that we, um, because it's so common, we're now providing crisis tech sign as a solution for other social media platforms right. and customer service organizations that are seeing this. Because we know as a business, it's hard to handle. And they shouldn't. You know, their right. protocols are basically, how do we avoid legal liability? And our concern is, how do we really help these people? Right, right. Um, so we're working with a whole bunch of companies like Facebook, After School, Kick, and some others I can't talk yeah. about yet, but yeah. a lot of companies are coming to us saying, hey, we've got this issue going on too. Can you help us solve it? So um, we're excited about that. So I thought I had heard something where you could, because this has happened to me several times on face, both on Facebook and on Twitter, where someone who, I, I don't really know them, I'm I'm we're friends on Facebook or we follow one another, but they're, I'm, they're not like a physical friend in my life. Like I don't have their phone number. I don't know where they live exactly. And I've seen them say stuff that concerns me. And I've reached out in private message because that's all that's available to say, hey, everything, right. like what, what can I do? Are you okay? Um, so is there an aspect of this where other people who are not in crisis can alert? I thought I read that there was some aspect where they could alert yeah. your team that someone they observe is in crisis. Yep, you can flag people. A, um, a lot of these platforms now have that, mm-hmm. which I think is terrific to see social media companies like Facebook, Twitter, and After School um, take this so seriously. Yeah, um, I think it's a great sign. So, um, in fact, they have like dedicated teams and people who um, are compassion teams. Um, oh wow! Who are who are focused on this. And yes, they are building, um, or some of them have already launched third party products basically where yes, you can flag someone and say, I'm really concerned about my friend. One of the people I reached out to was actually super like back off. (laughs) Like I don't, I don't, (laughs) I don't want you reaching out to me to to talk about that. And so people have very different responses. You know, my suggestion though, is that you err on the side of reaching out. I've done the same thing. I reached out to someone who I actually didn't know very well. Right. Um, this was before Crisis Text, and this was years ago. And um, I, I didn't know him very well, but I was pretty alarmed by what he had said on Facebook. And when I reached out to him, I was pretty surprised to find out that I was the only one who had reached out to him. Oh. I think people really don't know what to do. Again, if you even if you just tell them like crisis text sign is available, yep. or um, I, I like to say to to young people, you can slip a note in someone's locker at school anonymously, mm. and just say this is available. You can put a poster in a hallway uh, to just spread the word out there. It's a great you know back to school kind of campaign um, for kids to chalk the number on sidewalks. Uh, and get the word out there to let people know that that help really is available 24-7 at their fingertips. So something super interesting that you did recently was you took funding like you're a startup, like you're a for-profit startup, um, and you know you had an announcement about taking this funding from a series of investors. How did you decide that that was your approach versus more, versus more traditional fundraising that a nonprofit might do and and how does that like what is how does that work for i guess yeah i mean i guess there's still investors i guess but it's not traditional so how how does that look how does that work for you and for them 
I will just say that it is my personal goal to never throw another like buy a table chicken dinner again. <laughs> like I'm gonna just put that out there. Um, like it's not because I'm a vegetarian. Um, it's just because I didn't set out to be a wedding planner. Oh my and god! Yeah. This, I mean, if you ask anybody in the not-for-profit space, we hate those dinners. All mm-hmm, of us. We mm-hmm. all hate them. We hate throwing them. No one likes sitting in the back of the room. Somebody has to sit in the back of the room. I have friends that I think just don't take my calls or emails in the springtime because for the last 22 years, I've been hitting them up for tables um, in the spring. So yeah, they're awful. So look, Crisis Text Line is a startup. It's a tech startup. It just happens to be a mental health charity. But we're not a mental health organization that's really good at technology. We're a tech startup that happens to be a mental health not-for-profit. And so we ought to behave like one. We're growing at that speed. Um, I need to hire really smart developers and really smart supervisors, you know, MSWs, at the pace of a fast-growing tech startup. So we needed real growth capital. So um, I raised what I consider a series B. Mm-hmm. Um, it's at t- actually $24.3 million is where we are. And I'm, I'm, it's technically not closed. It's kind of a rolling close. Mm-hmm. I figure we'll close it for real around Labor Day. It'll really be done. But um, there's still some money coming in. And this money should get us through the next uh, two and a half years. Uh, and now it's so freeing. I will tell you, it's just so nice to be able to put my head down and work and not be filling out lots of grant applications and right. not be um, thinking about a seating chart for a dinner, but instead be focused on really smart product, you know, retention of our crisis counselors, high quality training, dashboards. Like it's just really freeing to be able to focus on what matters. And is that your plan then to continue that approach? Like in two and a half years, you know, do you just you go back and you do another investment round in this in a similar way, or do you, um, like start to I, do you take do you take ongoing donations anyway from people who want to help or sure yeah I mean please send money sure <laughs> I love money yeah send it I mean like absolutely what crisistextline.org um, right <laughs> crisistextline.org bring it on absolutely yep. I mean we need we need money the people who work here are paid and and like not awesomely right like right. no one's getting rich uh, coming to work here but uh, yeah, no, we still take contributions, and we're a not for profit. Like we we will file our form nine nineties like everybody else, yeah. right? And um, by the IRS, I am you know normally I would say I'm trying to run a really great company, and that's why I'm doing things this way. But yeah. it's bigger than that. I'm not just trying to run a great company or be the best company. Clearly, I'm not aiming for an IPO or for a sale because we're a not for profit. I'm trying to move the mental health sector forward. Like right. I'm not even just trying to make crisis text line as good as it can be we're trying to build some products here that is that will help everyone right that will help nine nine one one that will help mm. the entire space and I'm hoping that the money that we've unlocked um, will help other mental health organizations um, and frankly other not-for-profit I think the not-for-profit sector itself needs to raise money in a different way and yeah. I'm hoping that you know this round can be an example of a new way of thinking and that you just brought up something. I'm like, does nine one one right now doesn't have text functionality, correct? And it so should. 
it's it's true. Nine one one is like the middle child who we all need to love. Like if you know a nine one one operator, you know a rock star. Yeah. Because if you think we, we all talk about police and fire and EMT and we celebrate them, you know what? Nobody calls the police department directly. Nobody like right. dials up the fire department and right. says, "Please come here. My house is burning down." We all the entry for all of those is nine one one, and they are so hammered by old policies. Mm. So for example, 911 is funded by local landline taxes. I did not know that was their source of funding and that source must be dwindling. So wow, they need an alternate solution. So um, what, if anything, can our listeners do to help Crisis Text Line? Like, but you know, we've the crisistextline.org. You are taking money. Yep. We've established that. <laughs> <laughs> what, that was what? not, that's, you know what? I, here's what I, I don't even want your money. I want your time. Okay. I want your time and your passion. The reason I agreed to do this interview is because the She Knows audience is our sweet spot, right? Yeah. Like, um, largely women of a, of a certain age and sort of intelligence and passion. And you are people who are switched on to the yeah. world. And those are our crisis counselors. Ah. Um, this is like the most amazing way to make a difference. If you're a crisis counselor, you will connect with another stranger in their like darkest moments yeah. and get them to a cool place. Like I, it, it's the most beautiful thing. And I do it too. I'm a crisis counselor. Mm-hmm. And seriously, it's the best thing I've ever done. It's the best thing I've ever done. It is so satisfying yeah. and challenging and has made me a better mother, a better friend, I think a better wife. I'll have to check with my husband when I get home, but I think so. If you want to be a crisis counselor, you apply online at crisistextline.org. We will do a background check. And then it's about a 34-hour online training. You can do it at home in your jammies. If you're accepted, um, it's a one-year commitment, Mm -hmm. and you pick the the four hours you do it a week. Um, I like to do it at 4 o'clock in the morning. I like to get up super early before I start my day. I was actually on there this morning at 4.30 in the morning helping out. And so, um, and and yeah, you're going to literally save lives from your own couch. So I hope everyone out there will go check it out. I and mean, you'll train. I mean, basically people apply and they don't already have to have any training in this area. You train them. In fact, even if you have training in this area, we're going to train you in our methods and our and our policies. So you just have to basically be over the age of 18, mm-hmm. have a U.S. social security number and the desire to do this and a great Internet connection. That, that's the other thing. You uh, need to have a great Internet connection. OK, yeah. well, those are more common now. Thank you, Nancy. I mean, thank you for joining us here, but thank you for what just seems like a lifetime of thinking about how to help other people. That's, well, thank you. Really... My next startup is going to be a donut company, I'm sure. <laughs> and uh, and I hope you have me on then. Well, if you could make donuts <laughs> that like had zero calories but tasted amazing, oh, then you would have I'd really cracked the code. I'd be so rich. And then I'd freaking become a philanthropist and give it all away. Yeah, exactly. Oh. See? See how that works? Oh, uh, thank you. Right. Again. Oh, thank gosh. you again, Nancy. It was a great pleasure talking to you. <laughs> Thanks. Now we're joined by Adrian Nieves, also known as Addie B online, and she is the founder of a new organization and site dedicated to women of color and mental health issues and awareness called the Tessera Collective. Welcome to the show, Adrian. Hi, good morning. Thank you for having me. So let's start by talking a little bit about your background. You are a multi hyphenate. <laughs> uh, yes, I am a uh, former military police officer. I served in the United States Air Force for four years. 
I am a writer. Uh, I'm a painter, an abstract artist. I am a wife. I'm a mother of three boys. And I also am a postpartum depression and anxiety survivor. And mm-hmm. I live with bipolar disorder. Mm-hmm. When did you publicly start talking about um, the mental health issues that you had experienced? I started talking about my mental health experience in 2010. Mm. I had started my blog in 2000, at the tail end of 2009, mm-hmm. and um, it was after the birth of my second son that um, I really started to struggle mm. um, with postpartum depression and anxiety. And even before I really knew what it was, I started talking about my struggle a little bit. And then once I figured out what it was and I started seeking treatment, uh, I also realized that in all of my searching and all of my Google searches and in, in trying to find other women who looked like me to talk about it with, I couldn't find anybody. Hmm. And so I wanted to share my story and my experience online so that if there was another black woman or another Latina woman or Mm -hmm. Asian woman or native woman or Indian woman who was typing into Google and, you know, trying to find someone else who was not white Mm -hmm. uh, talking about their mental health struggles. I wanted them to see someone who was of color and see that, you know, they weren't alone, that they weren't by themselves in in it. What took you these five years later since you started your journey of talking about it publicly to decide to form an organization and and what do you want that organization to do and please tell me what the name where the name comes from because I think the name is really interesting as well we chose the word collective the team that I have um, because we wanted to be inclusive of all women of color uh when I first started thinking about creating a platform or a nonprofit organization uh, that focused on mental health advocacy, it's a very predominantly white space. And mm-hmm. honestly, I just kind of feel like white women have enough champions. Mm-hmm. I, I saw a huge gap, uh, mm-hmm. a lack around advocacy that was diverse and that was inclusive of women of color and our experiences. And then to Sarah, um, to Sarah is a, is a piece of glass that is a small part, um, of a mosaic. When, mm. when, uh, people make mosaics, they take glass and they, they break it, they mm-hmm. shatter it mm-hmm. and they use those little pieces, uh, to make the, the picture. And what I liked about the imagery of a mosaic is that there are, Uh, Lots of different colors, lots of different shapes. Not every single one looks like the other, Mm -hmm. Um, but there's also filling in between each piece. Uh, I started thinking about the beauty that can come from brokenness. And um, I truly believe that uh, what makes us broken can also make us powerful. And, you know, I think that's a very powerful reframe to have specifically around mental illness and I found to Sarah. What do you want to Sarah to do? What what is it going to provide? It's a little overwhelming and a little daunting to think about, but at our core, our mission is to provide or to enable women of color to speak openly and honestly about their mental health experiences. 
um, because we believe in the power of storytelling. We believe in the power of dialogue. We believe in uh, transparency and that if we can talk about what is happening with us, if we can talk openly about things that are impacting us, especially in our cultures where we are expected to remain silent about what we're suffering with, mm. we feel that we can help save one another's lives. And we can, if we change the face of mental illness and we start showing that it is d racially diverse, especially, mm -hmm. and if we start showing that we also experience these things and not only do we experience them, but we also thrive in spite of it, mm -hmm. I think that can be really powerful. And so that's 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 part of our mission. So we have a Facebook support group. We want to make sure that we are providing safe spaces for us to be able to just get peer-to-peer -peer community support from one another. This August, our support group on Facebook will be two years old, and we have uh, about 80 members from all over the country. Since I've been active online since, you know, 2010, this has been my favorite community to be a part of. It is such a beautiful thing to witness, to see other women who look like me and who have similar experiences as a marginalized person, supporting one another, listening to one another, you know, offering support, words of encouragement, um, celebrating, you know, the smallest of victories with mm -hmm. each other. Um, I'm getting emotional just thinking about it. It's, it's mm. week after week, I watch it. Um, and then the the other thing that we are hoping to do as well is we want to provide us a, uh, a resource online, mm. um, not just the support group, but also where people can go and try to find a mental health professional of color. Mm. Um, one of the biggest questions That's we great. always get. Yes. One of the biggest questions we always get is, you know, um, does anyone know of a therapist of color in such and such city yeah. or in this area? Speaking from my own personal experience, I've had I've had both. I've had uh, therapists who are white and I've had a psychiatrist and therapists who are of color. And there is something to be said for cultural competency and mental health care. Mm -hmm. And the level of comfort that you have being in a space with someone who understands culturally w what you face and what you come from, mm -hmm. um, it makes a huge difference. So that is uh, something else that we're working to provide on our website is a directory of therapists and mental health professionals from all over the country so people can go there and they can, you know, see if there is one in their area. That's super cool. And then the last... Yeah, and then the last part of it, too, is we want to find a way to help people use or help women of color use creative expression as a self-care tool. You know, you, you bring up cultural competency, and, you know, I don't think it's a walk in the park for anyone to talk about mental health issues um, publicly. Um, however, it's a very common theme that um, people of color, communities of color, and particularly women of color, um, there is more, um, a next level trepidation about it, a kind of next level, at least perceived yes. stigma and shame about it. Um, and, uh, and this coupled with this lack of representation and so therefore kind of silence around it. Um, what do you think is the foundation of that, 
uh, in at least speaking for, you know, our culture here in the United States? Well, I think I think as a system, uh, there has there hasn't really been a focus or a push to take care of the mental health of people of color in this country. Mm. Um, we, you know, we talk about veterans having PTSD, mm-hmm. but one thing you don't hear a lot of talk about is the PTSD that people of color can um, develop just from dealing with racism and oppression. You know, it could be microaggressions at work. It could be witnessing, um, you know, state sanctioned police violence or just neighborhood violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the impact of living in poverty, all of that can contribute to and, and impact your mental health. But we don't we don't talk about that. Mental health professionals don't usually. Yeah. And we you know, the thing is, PTSD, meaning post traumatic syndrome, has been applied beyond the military to if you grew up with child abuse, um, domestic violence, things like that. Um, But it's all, all of that focus is kind of on the past. You know, what what is the repercussions of something that happened to you past tense? And, um, you know, I, I, I know that podcasts are somewhat timeless, but we are recording this on July 7th, 2016. We're in the last 48 hours We've seen two black men shot by the police, yeah. one subdued, the other following instructions. And that's not a post, Correct. you know, when you bring up the <laughs> the trauma, um, right. you know, it's, right. there's nothing post about it. It's it's like right now. I don't know if there what is the name for that, um, that it's an ongoing I, <laughs> traumatic syndrome. I, I mean, <laughs> right. Like it, I, I think. I think the best way to just describe it is that it it is trauma. Mm-hmm. It is trauma, and people are experiencing trauma daily, whether it's through, um, you know, what they're experiencing in their own daily personal life, in their environment, or on the job, or in their neighborhoods, or if it's, um, you know, through the news cycle, witnessing, bearing witness to um, these atrocities that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think one of the other things that contributes into us not, you know, basically, I guess, in a lot of non-white communities, it's, you know, mental illness is a white person thing, right? I think what contributes to that is this lack of understanding that, um, or awareness about what can actually trigger things like depression, and Mm -hmm. anxiety, and panic attack, you know, panic Mm -hmm. attacks. And, you know, there's just not a lot of education in minority communities around mental health and what symptoms of mental illness are, especially because for so long, we've been indoctrinated with this belief that, you know, we're supposed to not just suffer in silence, but our suffering is supposed to be normal. Mm. Mm-hmm. I also think that sometimes it's hard. Where's the line? You know, it's pretty normal to be when, you, you know, to me, it's rational to look at what's happening mm-hmm. in the world in a variety of ways around a variety of things and be upset, mm-hmm. be depressed, yes. be anxious, yes. be angry, be yes. like feel a lot of feels about all the stuff that's going down where I don't think we like, how do you know, where's the line where I'm, I'm too depressed. I'm too anxious. I'm too angry. I am too right. like, where, ha, when will I cross the line between rational reaction to, 
real world events that matter and mental health issue that should be addressed. Right. Most definitely. And people also don't understand that you can be depressed uh, because of your situation. Yeah. And because of your circumstances um, and that, you know, if you do some work to change those things, uh, you know, externally, mm-hmm. that that can, you know, that that can mo- help move you out of the de- that depression that you're in. And but then there's also chronic right. depression and there's also, you know, so there's also not a real distinction um, between those two. And, and you know, I you'll see on Facebook sometimes videos from people who are like, you know, oh, like there was just one recently where my husband and I were talking about it. We were both like, dude, what? Um, (laughs) This guy was saying, you know, oh, you know, don't say that you're depressed. You know, say that, you know, because you are not depressed. You are just dealing with this and this and this. And Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, maybe that works if you have situational depression. Right. But if you have a chronic mental health condition like bipolar disorder where you experience depressive episodes or if you have seasonal affective disorder where in the fall or sometimes, you know, even in the summer, this shift in seasons impacts you. Yeah. Uh, that's not something that you could just be like, oh, yeah, no, I'm not depressed. No, yes, I actually am depressed. This is a part of me. It's mm-hmm. not all of me, but it is part of my reality. When... um so going back to Tessera and the focus, I guess, on being an online resource, um, what mm-hmm. do you kind of see as the best and worst aspects of um, creating this online community? And is there a place where you are also creating offline community? Well, I think um, online is, is important because online gives you access, right? It gives you access to building or creating spaces uh, where people can come together from all across, you know, the country, the world, um, who, and, and maybe have uh, spaces to find other people who are experiencing some of the same things that they are, who maybe don't have that access offline. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I have, I have several women uh, in our support group on Facebook who um, can't let it be known that they're a part of a community like that. Um, because Mm -hmm. in their own personal lives offline, they run major companies. Mm -hmm. They, um, you know, work in corporate, they Mm -hmm. are the faces of organizations and, or they are pastors and churches Mm. and they cannot let people know because of the stigma surrounding mental illness, mm-hmm. they cannot let people know that they suffer with an anxiety disorder or, you know, depression or, you know, bipolar disorder or something like that. So online is, is very important. The downside that I see, it, it's not safe. It opens you up mm-hmm. um, to trolls and to people who just, you know, who don't, who don't get it. Mm-hmm. But uh, with that being said, um, we are committed to finding ways to create those safe spaces online for people. But I'm hoping that in the future, we can also um, have some support groups offline um, in communities that don't have them. 
So, you know, the, the, the last question I really wanted to ask you is that we're having conversations at Blocker 16 this summer about how to be an ally, particularly when you're not where the person is, when you're how to be an ally to people of color when you're not, how to be an ally to the LGBT community when you're not. What would you ask our listeners to do um, to support what you want to roll out and do with Tessera? Um, Well, I think uh, the biggest ask that I would have is to just let people know that we exist. Yeah. Um, Whether it's people in your personal life or people in your online life. If you have friends, if you have women of color in your life who you either, you know, either struggle with a mental health condition or maybe need a safe space um, to talk about some of these things with other women of color. And what is the URL then for Tessera? Uh, it is tesseracollective.org. T-E-S-S-E-R-A. Great. So you heard her, everybody. Go visit Tessera. <laughs> and she told you exactly what to do. Uh, Adrian, thank you so much for joining me today. It was great talking to you and hearing about the work you're doing and, and how important it is. Really grateful to have you on, on the show. Thank you so much. This means everything to me. I'm really grateful for this. So now we're joined by Dior Vargas, who runs a project called the People of Color and Mental Illness Photo Project. Dior, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about your project. Um, what is it and, and what inspired you to create it? So it was in the fall of 2014, and I decided that as an activist, I had been working on so many different topics, such as domestic violence and reproductive rights and body image issues, and I realized that there was a common denominator among all of those topics, which was mental health. And as someone who lives with mental illness and is a suicide attempt survivor, I realized that maybe my time would be better spent focusing on mental health and uh, specifically on the mental health of communities of color. Initially, that wasn't my plan, but uh, when I decided to start researching mental health and what discussions were being had, I noticed that when the Google images popped up, most if not all individuals were white people. And Mm. so I decided that I wanted to highlight the experiences of people of color who live with mental health issues because that's a topic that is rarely discussed. And I wanted to create a space where people could feel comfortable talking about their issues and seeing people who looked like them because Mm -hmm. I think that representation is extremely important. Mm -hmm. And so just creating a space where people could share their stories and humanize the experience of mental illness. Tell me what the project looks like. What are you asking people to do to participate in it? So uh, on the website, uh, I give them instructions where they can submit a photo of themselves holding a sign and basically they could say whatever they want, but the the main point of it is to say what they, they live with, if they feel comfortable doing so, mm-hmm. but saying, you know, I'm a woman of color or I'm African-American or Latina, just say who you are and what your experience is with mental health. Uh, people have used hashtags like no stigma. Mm-hmm. So it, it's pretty much allowing, uh, making a space where people can use their own language and use their own words to describe what it is to be at the intersection of uh, race and mental illness. What has that space meant to some of your participants? I received a lot of messages 
uh, from people saying that it was something that they were too afraid to talk about, mm. that they used the project to bring this up to their family members to say, look, this isn't a white person issue. This is something that happens to a lot of us. Mm -hmm. And so I think that it's been able to start conversations. Unfortunately, sometimes people need tangible proof to kind of get that validation. And so in a way, I've been able to provide that to people so mm -hmm. that they can be open and be transparent about what they're going through and start making connections with people who maybe have the same diagnosis or share the same experiences. Mm. And so I'm hoping that as a result, uh, family members will talk about it more and people will make more connections and find more of a community. Did you integrate your personal experience into the initial effort or did that come later? Initially, I didn't, but that it was maybe a few weeks. Ah. So it wasn't like months and mm -hmm. I decided to share my story, but I felt that I felt like I wanted to show that my skin was in the game, mm -hmm. that this was a personal experience for me and that I had lived experience as someone who has a, a couple of or someone who lives with mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. So I contributed my own photo and the more I shared it, the more people were sharing on their end mm -hmm. and then a lot of people just were contributing and talking about it. And so I've been really happy that it's gotten the traction that it has. So given the audience, the subject matter and what you're saying about how it was rarely discussed um, and you couldn't see images of representation, when you launched this, did it take time to build momentum and, and, and I guess trust in that community? Or was it something that was just like, oh my God, like I have to do this now because I haven't seen this before. I could see it going both ways. I'm wondering what happened when you launched your project. It, it's funny, it did go both ways. It, initially, a lot of people were, a lot of people didn't really want to contribute. They mm -hmm. appreciated the discussion, but they were afraid, which is understandable because there's a lot of stigma out there. Mm -hmm. But I think that as I added more of my personal story and sharing my experiences, I think that that's when people started trusting the project more and they were more willing to talk about their issues and, and a lot of people got support from family and mm -hmm. I think that a lot of the individuals, even including me, were scared about the consequences and I think that a lot of us pleasantly surprised with the support that people gave and then other people in turn started sharing their own stories. So it, it did have this domino effect that I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really grateful for. Your project and others like it are focused on people of color, communities of color, and, and the fact that they experience more reticence. Maybe there's more stigma or more shame around this issue. But why do you think that is? What is this? You know, why do you think that there is this next level trepidation, I guess, in communities of color? I definitely think it's because of the trauma that communities of color have suffered in the past. I think that when it comes to the prioritization of things, it's usually survival mm -hmm. and basic necessities and getting food on the table, supporting your family, having a job, having a, a home to live in. And so when it comes to one's mental health, I think that we usually push it to the side. Mm -hmm. We also think that we don't deserve it because I feel that many of us have been shown that our lives are disposable and that they don't matter. And so mm -hmm. if we're not 
shown uh, the validity of our lives, then how would we take it as seriously? And so Mm -hmm. I think that there are so many other uh, stereotypes that are involved when it comes to communities of color. And even, and, and this is not my own experience, but hearing the idea of the strong black woman trope mm-hmm. and how uh, just just women in general or people of color in general are self-sufficient and strong and any sign of weakness is shameful. It, there's just so many different things that are at play when it comes to mental health and mm-hmm. pride that it really it really prevents people from getting the help that they need. Well, right. And I think that even if you're from a community of color and, and you're not struggling with the foundational survival needs, well, then anyone who's part of a marginalized community, when they've made it, they're like a representation, right? Like they got to they got to show up for their whole people, right? In a way that absolutely, you know, in a way that the majority doesn't have to do, they can be an individual. And so that again, it's that it's not even just betraying weakness when you're struggling in, in fundamental needs, it's betraying weakness, even if you're not you know, because you're supposed to be one of the ones who's fine. Absolutely. Um, Social media has, you know, obviously I'm a huge fan and proponent of social media, but it also opens you up. How much do you guys have to deal with trolls or negative feedback or any kind of negative blowback from using social media as your mechanism? Uh, Pretty often a lot of people get upset because they think that we're, purposely excluding white people Mm. and the whole point of it is to highlight a group of individuals whose stories are are usually silenced and so Mm -hmm. I think that that can be really upsetting because it derails the conversation and it it did take some time for me to come to terms with trolls and just how they work and just pushing forward and being uh, adamant about what I'm trying to do Mm -hmm. and being supportive of the individuals who I'm I'm trying to focus on. And I think that it's important for people to step back and to go on a social media break if necessary. I Mm. mean, sometimes it's, it's harder than others because I constantly want to continue providing information about mental health and about communities of color. And so sometimes it's not always possible to take a break even in terms of just mentally taking a break because how, how can can you sometimes mm-hmm. uh, so yeah social media can be great and then it can be bad which I, I think is uh possible with most things well that that's true I mean I think I have a couple things when when you say all that uh when we started blog her 11 years ago there were people who like called us sexist <laughs> And said we were se- <laughs> said we were separatists, and and I always used to say there's a difference between separatism and solidarity, and you mm-hmm. can you can build one without having to engage in the other. Um, but the other thing I think about is as Brianna Wu said this from our stage at Blog Her 15 last year, and I I don't think it's her. I think she was quoting someone, so forgive me if I don't remember the right person. But they said when you've spent for the person who has spent all their time being top dog, just raising other people up to equality feels like oppression. Um, and mm-hmm. because it's like a shift in, I guess, importance or whatever. And so I think that's what really can be hard for people to to process. And they, they just, you know, they're going to have to get over there themselves. But um, but but, <laughs> but speaking of uh, the social platforms and trolls and all of that, uh, I was at South by Southwest this March and spoke as part of the online harassment summit. 
Um, and I'm, you know, there was a, there's a lot of conversation about what should the social platforms be doing in their policies or their tools um, in order to be more supportive of people talking about mental health issues, um, in order to help people have conversations with without all of this kind of unwanted noise. Do you do you wish there were things that some of these platforms were doing differently? Well, I'm just thinking about in terms of just uh, places in general where there needs to be some sort of mental health component, uh, like at jobs, making sure that there mm. are individuals who are trained, who can talk about these issues and can be a resource for, for employees, but also in terms of social media. And, you know, I think that a lot of us can rely on technology to solve problems, but sometimes you need that personal touch and sometimes you need people dedicated specifically to the mental health and mm -hmm. to anti-trolling. And there's so many times where women are harassed on Twitter and a lot of times when you try to report them, there's this whole process that one has to go through that re-traumatizes them. Mm -hmm. And so I think that there needs to be a process in place that people are specifically dedicated to focusing on issues like this and taking care of it and not getting a, a bot to to reply to these things, but just to show that, you know, someone's human and that they are that their experiences are being validated. Yeah, I, I you know, one of my disappointments with a lot of mainstream media sites is that they don't invest more in community moderation because I know community moderation is what makes the conversations on blogger.com civil even when they're in disagreement. But, you know, it's expensive. It's people. Usually it's humans. But mm -hmm. and, and I know that a company like Twitter or Facebook might be able to say, hey, we could never have that many community moderators. So they rely on this reporting mechanism. But it seems to me that some of the most vile things I see, there has got to be an automated way to filter for people saying, you know, the the threats, death threats or sexual violence threats or, you know, horrible epithets. I, I just can't believe there's no way to kind of automate that more and take it off everyone's, take it off our plate to have to report everything. Um, so you're on a panel at Blogger 16 about being an ally. What would you want listeners to do, you know, right now to support your project, um, whether or not they themselves have mental health issues? And, and what can they do every day as part of this big, especially online community, where we're so many different kinds of people interacting together? What, how, what does that look like to you? So before I answer that question, I was just thinking about what you were saying before. And, and I mean, it is possible for like in compliance, when there are emails sent, there are certain keywords that are used, they're flagged. And uh, so I just wanted to add that. So it, it's definitely possible. I think that people just need to be genuinely concerned and interested in the welfare of the consumers that are using their products. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But to go to go back to what you were saying, um, I think it's important to show up and that can come across in different forms. But letting people know that you see them and that you will be there for them in any form that they need, mm -hmm. validate their experiences. I'm also thinking about in terms of the language we use, mm -hmm. uh, in terms of mental health, mm. uh, not not using words uh, like crazy or insane, um, being cognizant of of how that comes across, yeah, and being intentional with how you you say things. And fi finding alternatives. 
that's probably that's something I've become so much more conscious of just over the last few years um, to not just when you when something outrages you or upsets you or angers you to dismiss it as that's nuts or that's crazy or that's, you know, whatever. I've become so much more conscious of avoiding that language. It's it's a great progress, you know, to be made to to sort of stop associating mental illness with um, everything that upsets us and outrages us and angers us. Definitely. So if people want to find your project, what's the easiest place to go check it out? So you can go on my website, uh, DiorVargas.com. The exact URL is DiorVargas.com backslash POC dash mental dash illness. You could also follow me on Twitter at DiorVargas. I'm on Facebook. The fan page is facebook.com forward slash mental health dv dv my initials mm-hmm. uh i'm on tumblr i mean i mean i'm basically a lot of places you're everywhere <laughs> um thank you so much for sharing about your project thank you so much for having you know starting the project and i'm really excited to have you at the conference this summer uh talking about these issues and i'm really happy that we got to chat today thank you again thank you so much It's it's been an honor That's it for this episode of Who She Knows, a She Knows Media podcast. For next week's episode, we'll be talking about our Hatch program, a program that engages Gen Z tweens and teens in talking about and creating content about media literacy, digital citizenship, and social issues. We'll be talking to two of our teen participants in Hatch and to She Knows Media's president, Samantha Ski, since Hatch was her brainchild. We're having a hatch track for tweens and teens at Blogger 16 in just a few days, so we wanted to share a little more about it. And don't forget, there are still tickets available for Blogger 16 at blogger16.eventbrite.com. I'm your host, Elisa Camelhor Page, Chief Community Officer at She Knows Media. Please tweet me at Elisa C or leave a message for us on the Blogger or She Knows Media Facebook pages. We want to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. 